Coming up on our hella confusing 20s. How fucked up is the Taika Waititi stuff, huh? Have you guys heard about that? Monica brought it to my attention. Brother, don't even worry about that because, bro, that's in the Bible. God already foretold that many 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and now, guess what, motherfucker? The way you think about artistry is forever changed. And welcome back to our hella confusing 20s. The podcast where me, Jeremy, um, talks about how crazy stuff is in your 20s. And also like about trying to be an actor and be creative. And also just honestly, you know, I think, oh, there's my chair creaking. Getting those creaking chair sounds in the podcast. Let me pause for a second. Okay, I'm going to try to move as little as possible but yeah so you know um trying to be creative and trying to stay hungry and just making sure that you're really out there doing something you're, you're out there doing something you know what i mean because it's so easy not to do anything and um that's not where we want to be that's not at all where we want to be but um i haven't actually podcasted on my own in a long time and I don't know, maybe it's partially because, you know, nobody really listens to it. Um, I'm not really, I'm not even really trying to promote it like that. I'm not doing it regularly and trying to find an audience. You know, I continue to be spread um, between a variety of artistic endeavors. I even just this evening, I mean, I wrote down like a bunch of projects, whether they're screenplays I want to write or things I want to film, TV shows I'd love to do, just, you know, things in the artistic realm. And I just looked at the list and I was like, wow, like to practically do these things on a world stage, a world-class level, would probably take months to years for just a single one of the projects. And so there's the rub, you know, I think I need to just continue moving in the direction where I block out all other possibilities to do the one thing that I really gotta fucking do and it's so hard it's so hard for all of us but you know what that's why we talk about it that's why we podcast about the struggle about the struggle but I have been making more YouTube videos consistently like I'm trying to lean into exclusively doing the videos but then comes this impulse like I made a short story about a CalArts just the, trying to capture lightning in a bottle I guess which is I guess kind of what all art is in a way and I really want to make a collection of short stories trying to capture the CalArts experience and then the Fremont experience and it's just I guess that's a good problem to have though where I'm just so overwhelmed by and in touch with the intensity of life and the experiences that I've had I was reading this thing um because I saw Minari holy moly how good is Minari if you haven't seen Minari you gotta see Minari it's um it's such a quiet subdued yet 
so emotionally rich and powerful film about the immigrant experience in America. And I was reading an interview with NPR with Lee Isaac Chung, the director, and I'm pretty sure he wrote the screenplay, or at least concocted the story that, you know, ended up becoming the shooting script. But I'm pretty sure he wrote the screenplay. Anyway, um, I could check that later. <laughs> but he talked about this author, and I'm doing her a disservice by not remembering her name, but she spoke of how for a long time she... Oh, I think, was it Willa Cather? Willa Cather, the, the author of, like, the early 1900s, perhaps. But it was about how this author was writing a lot about high society and was fairly successful doing it, but it wasn't fulfilling her in that deep way that that artistry can and I think is the purpose of art. Um, but then she started to remember and think about her own life and growing up in a rural place in the heartland of America. And that's when she felt like she really became a writer. And so for, Min for him, Minari was a process of remembering. And me, so many of the things I, I am so inspired to create, it is that process of remembering. And uh, I'm trying to get super in touch with that, you know? And if I have to make one project and jump to the next project and do this, you know, while I'm figuring all that out, hey, so be it. But I just need to make sure I'm finishing one thing before I do the next thing. And I just love learning. Oh, my God. Like, I've been trying to do different things with video editing. I've been playing with color correction and just, you know, learning bit by bit here in Premiere Pro. And before you know it, wow, I've learned so much. Um, I just read Beyond Order by Jordan B. Peterson. That was absolutely incredible. One of the most influential, beneficial, practically useful books I've ever read. I'm going through it, taking notes, reviewing my notes. That's another thing I've gotten really into is... When I'm really reading a book that I'm, I'm hoping to glean wisdom from, I take notes as I go through, and then I put the notes onto my Google Drive, and I go through maybe a page or two of notes each day, you know, in the morning, part of my morning routine, just so I can deepen my connection to a lot of these ideas and really let them do some, really let them put in work you know, putting work inside of me and just transform me. And I mean, the growth that I have, that I feel tapped into is just, I feel like it's never going to end and I never want it to end. My mind is so voracious. I want more. I want more. I want more. How fucked up is the Taika Waititi stuff, huh? Have you guys heard about that? Monica brought it to my attention. Um... But apparently Taika Waititi, it's rumored he's dating Rita Ora because he was seen with her at some, like a RuPaul event here in Sydney. And they were spotted outside together. And just last year, he was posting pictures with his wife and kids. He was such a good family man. I thought he was so funny. And I've really come to appreciate his talent and his unique voice as I've seen his work. You know, Thor Ragnarok, Jojo Rabbit, What We Do in the Shadows, and I know I gotta watch more. Hunt of the Wilder People. Is that what the movie's called? Something like that. But damn. To quote Monica, he's just another one of those. I really wanted to believe in him. 
That sounds so dramatic. Like he's like a cult leader. Then I'm like, <laughs> I want to believe in Taika. I want to believe in Taika. No, but I don't know. I get it. There's a separation between the quality of the person and their their moral compass and the work that they do. But for me, it's much, much easier, much, much more natural. And I feel way better supporting people when I know that they're good people of integrity and character. And I just, you got to stay true to your family, man. You can't get caught up in the fame and you're dating a chick who literally is known for just sleeping around with dudes and cheating on dudes. Oh, he's just having fun. He's too old to be having fun. He has the gray specks in his beard already, Taika. Taika, my my bro, you are too old to be having this kind of fun, bro. Ugh, be responsible. It's okay. Whatever. He's living his life. It's just scary. Because it's like, damn, can anybody reach the A-list in Hollywood and have all this monumental success without becoming a monumentally shitty person and abandoning the people who were always there for them and were the foundation and bedrock of those years that they were able to be creative. And I know the answer is, of course, I brought this up to Max and he was like, Neil Patrick Harris did it. And I'm sure there's countless examples, but I just really wanted Taika to do it and he didn't. My gosh. And you know what I've seen a lot lately? I mean, of course, hey, there is a rise in the States and abroad of anti-Asian racism. And it's problematic and it's fucking insane and it's deeply deeply ignorant on the part of of course all the people perpetrating it but you know let's have a little bit of reason a little bit of temperance in the sense that criticizing the ccp the chinese communist party for those of you who are not acquainted that's not the same as anti-asian racism you're racist if you think that criticizing CCP, the Chinese government, is anti-Asian racism. Holy moly, there are so many Asians and so many non-Chinese people and Chinese people who despise what the CCP is doing. First, the whole obfuscation of the origins of COVID, not giving the world a proper warning and unleashing this absolute havoc upon the world that has killed so many people. And of course, viruses, plagues, inevitable of course, throughout human history, that's the way it goes, right? That's in the Bible. That's in the Bible, as um, ministers in the church that I was growing up in would say, brother, don't even worry about that because, bro, that's in the Bible. God already foretold that many 2,000 years ago. <laughs> many, many years ago, God foretold that already. Um... But it's true, you know? But anyway, still, China was not open with it. And they're freaking... Australia is at odds with China because Scott Morrison called out the origin of the virus. And now there's tension and Australia is preparing to possibly go to war. Taiwan is in a state of uh, getting ready, getting prepared. Because they think China might try to invade sometime this year. There's drama in the Philippines because China is going into the waters around the Philippines, not giving a fuck. And Trump has been calling them out. Trump, for all you want to say about Trump, 
right? And I get it. I get how saying China virus, Kung flu, all of these things can lead very stupid people to feel emboldened to commit anti-Asian hate crimes in the States and other countries. But you got to take the good with the bad. And he has been hard on China in a way that not enough people are hard on China. And he's, you know, he I saw him say, everybody's always talking about Russia, 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 their own whole bag of fucking problems. But people are not recognizing the CCP for the danger that it is. And that's dangerous, you know? And there's the whole awful, awful conditions, the awful, I don't know what to call it. Are they exterminating them? Are they reculturating, reacculturating them? That's not a word. That's probably not a word. But they're doing awful things of, uh, they're, they're committing awful acts of oppression against the Uyghur Muslims. And I mean, is that the CCP? I'm honestly not that informed on it, so I won't say too much on it. But that stuff is happening in China, and the government, to my knowledge, is not confronting it and is perhaps the ones perpetrating it. And it's super fucked up. And people need to grow up here and learn how to think a bit more critically and call a spade a spade. You know what I'm saying? Call the spade the spade. So I was listening to um, an interview with Chuck Palahniuk, who's the author of Fight Club and Invisible Monsters and, and other plenty of other books. He's made heaps of books and stories. And he was on Tom Bilyeu's show, Impact Theory. And I just really love the way that he talked about what writing stories does for him. And he said for him, it's a way to... When there's something that's particularly painful or even just emotional in his life, to turn that into a story, it's like he's exhausting all of, oh, I got a burp. Hold on a second. <clears throat> Delicious. It's like he's exhausting all of the emotion he feels about that event so that it doesn't consume him anymore. It doesn't rule him. It doesn't have the power over him that it would have had had he not put himself in the act of creation. And I just think that's so beautiful, whether it is writing a story, making a video, making a screenplay, making a song. Isn't that what we do it for? We are exhausting the emotions. We are finding a way to channel what can be chaotic and destructive. And we're putting that towards something positive and meaningful and I just love that, Chuck P. I'm always going to think of that. And I wanted to say it on this podcast in case, you know, somebody listens to this podcast who hasn't listened to that episode of Impact Theory and they haven't heard that brilliant quote from Chuck Palahniuk. And now, guess what, motherfucker? The way you think about artistry is forever changed like it was for me. And that's because I decided to say it. Oh, that's what that's what all this is about, huh? Just sharing things making life a little bit better for other people, if you can. Um, in other news, Monica has got me religiously washing, washing, religiously washing my ass for the first time in my life. No, religiously watching MasterChef Australia. And I got to say, holy moly, it's so good. I, I have never watched MasterChef before. I've seen clips of it. Cool competitive cooking good for you that's what i used to think now oh my god it has me 
rethinking my entire life, all of my dreams and aspirations of wanting to be an artist? Do I? Or do I want to be a chef? Do I want to get in the kitchen, cooking up crack in the crock pot? Is that like a Migos lyric? Or is it cooking up crack in the Cooking up. He probably doesn't say cooking up crack in the crock pot. But it just sounds like something that like offset or take off or whatever. Quavo. There we go. The main one. It just seems like something they would say. But anyway, I don't think that's what they say. But it's like, whoa, like the, the amount of thought that goes into the cooking, the beauty of it, the balance, the unique combinations and ideas of like, okay, bringing this sweet with this savory or this is normally this, but then or like the temperature factor and the cultural factors and, and what it means to gather around a table. Oh my gosh. And hearing the judges feedback. It's so fun. It's so fun. I just want to make delicious food. I want to taste it. Oh my God, almost everything I see plated up. I want to taste it. It's amazing. Kudos to all those home chefs, you know? I've also been reading um, how Proust can change. Is it Proust? Proust? Marcel Proust. Marcel Proust. Marcel Proust, because he was French. I've been reading about uh, Marcel Proust. <laughs> Marcel Proust. Okay, I'm going to stop trying to say it now. Um, but Alain de Botton's book, How Proust Can Change Your Life, because, I mean, Proust's, what's largely considered his masterwork, is like a massive tome. I think it's many, many volumes. And, I mean, it would take a serious commitment to read through that and try to decipher useful wisdom from it. And so I'm so happy that Alain de Botton made a more accessible book, you know, what we can learn from Proust. But my favorite thing about Proust, okay, well, one of my favorite things, because I also love that he was like, he had so many problems. He had like health, health problems. He couldn't handle the sun very well. He had to urinate so much and it was painful and he could hardly eat anything. He had to eat a very, very specific a very, very specific diet of very, very specific foods at very specific times to get it done. Anyway, God, you just read that and you're like, hey, my life's not so bad, huh? <laughs> I think that's the benefit of, of a lot of things you read is you can just say, hey, my life's pretty great, actually, when I read all this stuff. Because, I mean, that's our biology, right? We just get used to the things that we are used to, the things that we repeat every day. And we start to think, we start to find problems with them. Our mind gravitates toward the negative, unfortunately, because you want to make it better. You want to make it better. But you read these things, you're like, hey, my shit is already quite better <laughs> in relation to this guy. But something I really liked was, so he came, so Marcel Proust came from very rich parents. And as he was in his late teens and early 20s, he tried so many things. He was really trying to figure out what's my profession going to be? How am I going to be useful and make a name for myself in this world? His dad was a very successful physician. 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 It's 11.14 p.m. That's why I can't fucking talk. Um, his, his dad was a very successful French physician and wrote a bunch of very, you know, at the time, very important books. But who do we read now? Not the fucking dad. We read Marcel. We know about Marcel. But anyway, um, nothing was clicking. He just seemed like such a failure, and he wasn't very good at writing, even though he just loved the humanities and writing and reading. And so there was a time in his 20s where they just kind of realized, hey, he might just be trying to be creative, but 
heavily rely on us financially his whole life. That was his parents' realization, sorry, for not clarifying. Um, and it just made me feel better about being on the almost 28. I turned 28 at the end of this month. And, you know, there's there's a lot in my life I am very proud of. A lot of my personal growth, a lot of things I've created, you know, despite not having made money from, from them or, you know, having gotten so many views. You know, I have a cookie jar. I have a cookie jar I can reach into and be like, dude, you did that. Dude, you fucking did that. And you can do this now. But um, it just made me feel not so rushed in my life because, wow, this guy, in, in, that, in the sense that he was, you know, <laughs> at a time when it seemed like society and his family really wanted him to be one thing and to be really good at it and be successful at it. He was the furthest thing from that. Yet, he stuck with it. He spent his life engaged in the things that he was passionate about. And by the end of it, he had made enduring works that have stood the test of time. And how fucking cool is that? You know, I take I take great heart from that, from Proust. So thanks, Alain. Thanks, Alain, for writing about it. Um... Another, yeah, I still have the sniffles, huh? That's a little bit annoying. I should try to calm down on the sniffles. So another thing that I encountered recently was, um, I think it was, it was, so it was on the Jordan B. Peterson podcast. Oh, speaking of Jordan B. Peterson, I've also been listening to his biblical lecture series from 2017. There's 12 lectures. They're all like two and a half hours, 245. And I'm on the third lecture, and it's just endlessly fascinating to me. You know, being raised Christian and realizing that, you know what, these things are not, there's no way that they're literally true, despite what, and I mean, most churches don't say they're literally true. Mine did. But to go through that experience and then to, be very reactionary against it as I fell away from that church and say, ah, it's all just bullshit. But then to have Jordan Peterson in a very sophisticated way that's tied to history, that's tied to other ancient stories and traditions like the traditions out of Egypt, out of Mesopotamia, and to have him take the the lessons, I suppose, of the Bible, the morals that when I think of my own experience, are so obviously universally true, right? He talks a lot about there are things that are true empirically, observably, scientifically, yeah, but that way of thinking is very, very recent, right? Only the past few hundred years out of however fucking goddamn long human beings have been on this earth. But beyond that, there are things that are true in the invisible world. There, We are human so there are things about our experience that are the same. And there are things that we all experience that we cannot, we can't experience for anybody else. And we can't have the experiences of somebody else. We can only talk about our experiences. You talk about your experiences. And we say, hey, holy moly, kind of seems like the same thing, doesn't it? And there are these intangible, invisible truths and he really mines the Bible for those in such an ingenious way. And I I cannot recommend those lectures enough. I'm going to go after I do this podcast, as I lay my head to sleep tonight, uh, you bet I'm going to listen to more of those lectures. Um, but anyway, 
he was doing a podcast with, I think, Ayan Hersi Ali, who is a woman from, um, I think, Africa. She's from a Muslim community, and she will speak out against some of the misogyny in the culture that she is familiar with. And sorry, I'm burping again. Because of that, she gets a bad rap. People call her Islamophobic, etc., etc. Look. There are, there's a way to respect Islam as a culture and respect that there are many, many good people that are practicing Islam with good hearts and simultaneously acknowledging that perhaps there are aspects of the culture that are a bit misogynistic and maybe could be tweaked a bit, updated a bit, that have to be. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The most interesting part of their conversation that I, that I wanted to bring up was they talk about the West. They talk about the Western world and its perception in the non-Western world, right? And how people can see some of the things going on in places like America, Australia, and Canada and say, oh, that's a failure of their values. Oh, wait, no, what the hell am I saying? I fucking was looking at my notes and I said the wrong thing. They'll say that the West has shitty values. There we go. That's the accusation, right? They're like, oh, look what's happening over there because they care about this instead of this. But the interesting point that was brought up was the problems of the West is that because of the values that our cultures have or because of a failure to live up to those values. Because you look at a lot of other countries, what values are they even trying to live up to? Like there are certain countries, I'm not going to name names here, but there are countries that their main value, they're trying to do really shitty things, whether it's about power or it's about, I honestly can't think of any other examples, power. I feel like there are certain countries where it's all about that. And because there is such a detachment from, you know, having higher values, such a detachment from true religion. And when I say true religion, I mean, to me, that means aiming for the ideal of what we can be as humans, the most loving, the most kind, looking out in the best way for your fellow human beings, being a social creature, trying to make the world a better place. I feel like our highest values need to be tapped into that general vicinity. And if you don't have that guiding light, if you don't, you know, if you don't start from a premise of, hey, every human has intrinsic value, something spiritual, something divine in them. If you're not starting from that place, oh, you're kind of fucked. <laughs> and so, I mean, to me, I think America, the at least, you know, the words that are written in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, is perhaps the most overt example of a nation founded on trying to honor that. And I think that's why despite its troubles, despite still being of the world and having many of its problems, time and time again, the culture of America has been synonymous with progress, right? Culture in the world and, and just fighting for, you know, democracy and these unalienable rights that we believe to be self-evident. And so that's some food for thought, you know? I Because I, I personally, at this moment in my life, I feel like, you know, places like America in particular, insured, you know, uh, Australia, the UK, Canada, I think there are a lot of values in the core of the culture that are ideal. 
and the, the closer we can get to living up to them, the better all the things will be. And uh, to make a slight pivot, I've been thinking about religious trauma. I've been thinking about how, I mean, and some people have really, really severe religious trauma. Mine probably extends as far as I feel like it has driven a wedge between me and my family members to different extents, to different family members, you know. And I've really tried to cultivate a closeness and honesty with my immediate family, uh, you know, lately. I mean, probably, honestly, probably the biggest ones are with my mom and my grandma and one of my cousins. Oh, and I guess one of my uncles. For the most part, it's chill. But, you know... <laughs> In in regard to religious trauma, I I feel like when I first left the church and that part of my life, in a way, all morality seemed pointless to me. And I was like, well, there's nothing. There's nothing to really hold on to. There's nothing to grasp onto. Nothing really made sense. And I felt that, you know, I was like, oh, all these things that my conscience has been, you know, all of these times throughout the years where my conscience has pulled on me, that's only because of this indoctrination I received from the church. And as more time has passed and I'm exposed to more sources, more information, more teachers, the more sophisticated my mindset around those things is changing. And I, I really feel a lot better about it in the sense that I don't think conscience is something taught. I do think there is an inherent morality that we are all born with. And I think sometimes there can be a bit of work that you need to do to, to really sit there and figure out, hey, this, these pangs that I'm feeling, is that because of the way I was raised or is, that, is this something deeper? Is this a deeper truth of of being human, of, of being, of, of striving for the light, of striving to be a good person who does good in the world, is that what's tugging at me right now, right? Is it these elevated, transcendent principles that I think we all have a, a tether to? And as we go through life, that tether can become severely severed. Maybe we don't feel that it, it. Maybe we don't feel that tether at all anymore, or we we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that we don't feel it, right? So we can just get used to doing, get used to sinning, bro. Get used to doing all that bad shit that we want to do. But yeah, I I just I think it's a shame that a lot of religions taint actual morality and actual conscience by attaching all these other things related to power and subservience and shame and guilt and and fear it gets so polluted and really takes away a lot of the benefit that i think uh, a pure and honest connection to your conscience and to those higher ideals um can have for you can mean for you and that's all just to say that you know, in a very circuitous way, I really, really believe in being good. And I really, really believe that if you sit and listen to yourself, you always know what the right thing to do is, what the good thing to do is. And stay true to that, baby. Yeah. 
And you know what? I think those are all the thoughts I wanted to, to get out today that felt very therapeutic. Wow. Thanks for being with me on this. I don't even know if this podcast is our hella confusing 20s anymore. It's really just things that I find interesting or funny or inspirational or want to grow with. <laughs> it's a growth podcast, baby. It's a funny growth podcast. So I guess that's what, I mean, that's what the whole shit was about anyway. I mean, the whole shit. Me f founding this podcast. Upon this rock, I shall found my podcast. Plymouth, 1776. No, but, um, <laughs> I have ancestors that came on the Mayflower. That's a fun fact. But, um, yeah, thanks for being with me through this session, you know. And if you disagree with anything I said, great. Because if people never disagreed with me, I wouldn't know how satisfying it feels to be right. <laughs> how satisfying it feels to be intellectually superior. No, I'm just kidding. But that's true, huh? People are always going to disagree with you. And I mean, but how satisfying does it feel to logically put something together, one and two and this and this, and here's my fucking case. Take it or leave it. Come up with something better. And motherfuckers can't, dude. Sometimes I forget how smart I am until I'm really dealing with a lot of people. And it becomes painfully apparent to me how fucking stupid they are. You know? But hey, that's not to be arrogant, right? Those stupid people, I'm sure they're much better than me in other ways. And there are also so many people that I am a fucking idiot compared to. And they're so smart. I didn't mean that in any kind of, you know, arrogant way. We, all, we are all equal as human beings, and we all have different skills, and people are better or worse at certain things, but nobody is better or worse in general. You know what I'm saying? Unless you're, you're evil. Like, if you do evil stuff, then I think you're worse than other people. But I think, I think there are few people who are beyond redemption, and that's something our society could learn from, you know? Bring redemption back, 2021. <laughs> All right, but yeah, thanks for listening to this episode of uh, Our Hello Confusing 20s. I recently moved from Wushka, Aust Australia, because they no longer have a free plan. And I'm on Anchor, baby. I'm on the free USA Anchor. But um, take care, stay safe out there. Keep learning, keep growing, and keep spreading that light. Another thing I just really want to share is the importance, I mean... He talks about it a lot. He talks about it in Beyond Chaos. And I think it's in, I'm sorry, Beyond Order. I think it's in the first one too, 12 Rules for Life, The Antidote to Chaos. Oh. But really, if you just, if you identify first, identify your true feelings about something, whether it's about something in the world, about something in one of your relationships, and then not to just hastily, roughly utter it, but to be careful and to refine it, to put it through a filter of kindness and empathy and understanding. And to communicate that is so powerful because through that truth, you can begin to construct the reality that you would like, a reality you can live with. And that's the best way to reduce the suffering because when you're not saying your truth and you're allowing things to be obfuscated, clouded, things that are impure or inaccurate or, or secretive, when you allow that to fester and grow, 
it can really just add a lot of negativity and suffering. So, hey, my real last sign off. Get out there and tell the truth, you fucking queen, because you're worth it. Okay, it's 11.32. I'm going to listen to some of that biblical series and fall asleep. Peace.